Welcome to the Piece by Piece podcast. I am Michelle Herman. This is where I spotlight people who are making contributions to communities and inspiring us to do the same. Welcome Tracy Kornblum, a behavioral coach for teens all the way from Hamilton, Canada. We also have with us today, Scott Freed, all the way from New York City, youth advocate. And today's topic is sexual consent with teens, being able to say no, being able to change your mind, talking about some of the challenges to teaching or speaking with teens about consent, and maybe thinking about it from a broader framework of things that aren't really discussed um, in everyday youth work. Welcome. I'm very excited to have you both here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Good to be here. Of course. Glad to have you. Maybe we can jump into talking about um, what what is consent or the overview. Yeah. I think uh, what I find is one of the challenges of, of talking about or educating or um, uh, bringing up conversations about consent is it's sort of a, a double-edged thing. On one hand, uh, people actually don't really know at all what we're talking about when we talk about consent. And on the other hand, there's a lot of people who think we really do know what we're talking about when we talk about consent, you know, with the Me Too movement and people feeling like they know the language of it, but actually there isn't really a, a, a great critical thinking around it and or it, it's not very personalized. I love the definition that was given to me by a seventh grader in California, literally in the schoolyard as I was leaving the school. I, I asked the students what in seventh grade what their definition of consent is. And she came up to me and she said, and this is her quote, it is spoken permission to do an act and continued spoken permission throughout the act. And then she said, basically, it's the opposite of permission-ish. Hmm. Permission-ish. It's really having permission. Hmm. It's not just in the beginning. It's not just on the phone. It's not just in a text message. It's all the way through the act. It's not permission-ish. It is total permission. That's really interesting. That makes me think about two things. I'm thinking... When you were starting to talk about the first part, I thought, oh my gosh, these are just words. And I feel like it, it was really nice when you brought that second part where she gave the, the language of permission-ish. So there was this real language that she really understands and can use. Whereas when I've been in some programs where we're teaching teenagers about consent, uh, especially watching programs for teenagers, um, it seems to me they learn the words, but they don't make the connection into those words that they actually understand. But they feel like they understand those other words and they can say them. And then the second part that's so important is, um, even with permission-ish, you need to know, because because what it comes down to is all the way through the act, being able to vocalize. Yes. What if you don't have the words? Because what are the words that you vocalize? What if you don't understand where you say those words or where it happens? Or you change your mind. Or you change your mind. But what are those words? I agree. I totally agree. Why don't we establish for our listeners what consent is so that then we can figure out what the words and what the are and what the words are not. 
and how hard it is to say those words or even nonverbal cues. Hmm. So I actually happen to love a website called amaze.org, A-M-A-Z-E.org. They're pretty progressive and current and they teach sexual health in a, in a pretty cool way. And so when I looked up their definition, it says sexual consent is when people agree to engage in certain sexual behaviors. They express by saying, yes, that's okay with me. Just because someone doesn't say no doesn't mean consent has been given. Asking for consent and giving consent for any sexual behavior is very important. You have the right to say no if you don't want to engage at any point and your partner must respect. And then the flip side of it, that the partner also has the right to say no and it has to be given willingly. Where do you stand on that? It's a great definition of, of consent, but it, it's still to me, if I'm thinking from a teenager's uh, standpoint, it still doesn't contain you know, the real part about what's really happening uh, during sex, because even with knowing about checking in and everything, it's still very difficult to be present in the moment. And you're able to say yes at different times because you think you want to say yes. And maybe you're saying yes for reasons that are outside your actual just desire to be engaged in this sexual activity. You might be saying yes because you want to be popular. You might be saying yes because you don't want to be rejected. You might be saying yes because you've been habituated to having this kind of experience, but you're still saying yes. So that's the part that I find difficult about consent. It's difficult because it brings up the responsibility of both partners to tell the truth to themselves. Right. Yes. In front of the other person. And so that's where it gets really complicated. Mm -hmm. You have two people taking their clothes off, but not taking their skin off, telling the truth about how they really feel and verbally or non-verbally, perhaps lying or just not being authentic. And I agree with you, Tracy. I think it's really important to be able to actually break it down what Michelle's definition was so that when we hear it, we can say, here's what you're saying, Tracy. Here's where the, there are cracks in that theory. Here's the quicksand in that definition. So let me give you some of what I've got. And let's see if we can surgically discover together how this is so confusing for a room full of teenagers. Mm-hmm. Consent is conscious, right? That means you're not drunk. That means you're not stoked. You might be a certain age, depending on the state. Of a certain age, of course. It's affirmative and unambiguous. What does that mean? Affirmative is not just a yes, as Tracy was saying, because sometimes the yes is ambiguous. It's a hell yeah. (laughs) It's a really big yes by each of the participants, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also ongoing. So as Mm -hmm. we were saying, halfway through, checking in. Are you still on a hell yeah? Mm-hmm. And it's not about not struggling or not saying no, as you said in your definition, right? It's about checking in with your own body and your own partner's body to understand each person's language. But that's where Tracy's point comes in. Even if you know your partner's body language, you may not know that your body is giving off a language or not giving off a language that you want it to give off. So then consent is unclear. Because it has to be clear, it has to be voluntary, and it has to be enthusiastic. Here's an important point that I want to I make sure I state. Arousal does not imply consent. Just because a guy has an erection doesn't mean he consents to doing anything with the erection. Nor does flirting or making out on the dance floor 
or going into a bathroom with someone. That being aroused does not say or confer, I'm going to do this. In the moment the act begins is where the yes, hell yes, has to arrive. Not in the text message at two in the afternoon, because at two in the afternoon it was a hell yes, but at nine o'clock at night at the dance, it's a hell no. Mm-hmm. It's gotta be in that moment, and arousal does not imply consent. And if there's drinking or something involved after that hell yeah, then there also needs to be some sort of renegotiation. What I'm hearing is, and what I love, is something that, you know, when I'm talking to teens, I talk about uh, body betrayal. So consent, let's talk about consent as something that is strictly intellectual and that your body is not necessarily a correct indicator of full consent because your body will betray you. And it's not because it's lying to you or or anything like that. It's because our body functions in ways that aren't necessarily connected to our intellect. So it's like the example you gave, Scott, which was amazing. You can get an erection in a situation that you don't want to be in. A woman can get aroused in a situation she doesn't want to be in. In the same way, when we're talking about sexual pleasure, which could be a whole other topic, we're talking about women Uh, in particular, who have a hard time experiencing sexual pleasure in the right moment. It's the same thing. Just because your body is responding in what appears to be a positive sexual way, it doesn't mean that you are cognitively or intellectually consenting to anything. And when we check in with our bodies, that's how we gaslight ourselves well, obviously I do want to do this because I am, you know, creating an open space with my body because I've gotten wet because I did kiss for a while before and I seem to enjoy it because I pulled him closer while I was kissing him. So obviously my body does want to do this. So I guess I'm there. We don't take the time to check in with ourselves. Which brings me to the next few definitions of consent exactly which is this consent to one form of sexual act does not automatically imply consent to any other Mm -hmm. just because you're making out with somebody on the dance floor doesn't mean you're consenting to having oral sex with them in the back room consent for one thing is not consent for all things yes and it's important to state that it can be withdrawn at any time. And that's where it gets really complicated because once you've said yes, do we teach our teenagers they're allowed to say no? No, we do not teach our teenagers that. And in all these other ways, let's not forget that a teenage mind, they're into taking risks. They enjoy the adrenaline from taking risks and from feeling like they're pushing boundaries. So they're confused by that feeling of being uncomfortable which is an enjoyable and sought after feeling for a teenager because it it signifies their independence. It signifies a maturity in some way for them. And there's a confusion around how a teenager perceives risk-taking and perceives uh, feeling uncomfortable and pushing boundaries. That's an important facet of of how teenagers experiencing maturing. Okay, let's talk for a second about the relationship between consent, personal boundaries, and bodily autonomy. I'd like to bring up something that I I was listening to about the idea of 
what if right from the get-go, the way that we taught our children about their bodies, about red flags, about respecting their own bodies, um, if all those things were in place, we wouldn't have to use a term like consent. Mm. And I've heard some people in parenting and in teaching about sexual health saying, you know, I'd like to teach my kid without using the term consent so that they can understand things from a place of being respectful to themselves as opposed to having to consent to somebody else's requests. I hear you. there, And there's also the piece of teaching um, consent, teaching it not, not in relation to sexuality or being sexual, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching it in terms of, like you said earlier, checking in with yourself and reading your body during the act, not just yes. my body feels good and so it must mean X, Y, Z. You know, I had an experience a few weeks ago with my daughter. We were at a store and we got up to the counter and the woman said to me, oh, do you have a coupon for this? And I said, no. Uh, do you have a coupon I could use? And my daughter was mortified and she like kicked me and then we left and I said, well, what was the problem there? And she said, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you did that. And I said, yeah, but then she gave me a coupon and I saved $25. And she said, yeah, I guess that was a good idea afterwards. And I stopped and I segued into a conversation with my daughter about why were you afraid? What was that thing that happened in you that made you afraid even for me to ask for something for myself? What is this thing that kids have? What was missing from the way she processes social interactions that made her afraid to say something that might have gotten her a no answer? Why are we so afraid of rejection? And I think that that interferes with us standing up for our own um, wants and needs and desires is to take care of somebody else, not to embarrass them, not to receive a no So it all gets muddled up in sort of that thing. And that comes back to like an identity and a self-respect sort of thing to me. So how do we, how do we teach boundaries, personal boundaries, the right to govern your body in teens when all of those things are so difficult and challenging and part of being a teen and having a teen brain is also not being able to, to get all that. I think it's really important to, to change the way we teach language from the get-go. A lot of people would say to me because they knew that I was interested in this, these kinds of topics and that I had been involved for several years in uh, sexual health education. And then having lived with teenagers for seven weeks at a time uh, in a camp setting. And they had said to me, oh, you know, I'm waiting for the right time to start talking to my teenager about sex. And I said, oh, uh, that's unfortunate that you're still waiting now that you have a teenager to talk to your person about sex. Um, I think waiting till somebody's mature enough to hear about these sorts of things, you've missed the real opening. In any other area where we seek to provide uh, knowledge to our children, we don't wait until they're completely ready for it. When I was teaching my children how to speak I didn't only say one syllable at a time walking around the house. I still said, put your toy on the table. Did they know how to conjugate words and know about, you know, nouns and how, how verbs worked and no, but I still said full sentences and they took the parts that they could and they were able to use the language as they learned about it. So it became second nature to them. And I'm not, sure why we're so uncomfortable to give kids 
a sexual understanding or an intimacy understanding or a self-respect body understanding, right from the get-go, they can slowly understand, but unconsciously they know that this is part of the whole thing. They're already comfortable with it. I can tell you why it's so uncomfortable to for some people to do that is because look how challenging it's been for us to define consent in a way that we're all satisfied, right? So how do we teach something that's so difficult? In addition to the fact that parents don't often want to think of their child, their little child, as a sexual being one day. Mm. They don't even want to go there. But I like to use the quote from Emma Thompson, the actress and director, who in one of her books explained to her 10-year-old daughter how she defines consent. And she says it this way. If anyone does anything, says anything, shows you anything, or suggests anything that makes you feel icky, move away, get away, and say no thank you. Mm -hmm. without words, because icky is an unbelievably useful emotion. Icky means no. We can start teaching nine and 10-year-olds how to locate their feelings, how to isolate their feelings. It's social and emotional intelligence so that eventually they're able to take those feelings and transfer them into words that sound like no or actions that look like walking away. You know, you remind me that one of my daughters, when she, from a very young age, didn't like kissing or hugging anyone. Now she'll say because she was didn't like the way people smell. And her grandparents often would force her and say, you have to give me a kiss. And that as early on as that is teaching consent, where I would step in and say, no, she really doesn't have to kiss. You can give a high five or a hug. Um, really allowed her to have that space and to feel respected. And in the beginning, when I was going along with it, and I said, you have to kiss your grandparents or your grandparents, she would really resist. Mm -hmm. And now thinking about the other children who don't do that, you know, you wonder if you've done the same training there. But that those are simple ways, asking your child before you hug or kiss them, if it's okay, before you touch them, if it's okay. One step further, actually defending them and advocating for them in front of the bubby, the Zadie, the grandparent to show them if they don't have the courage to to speak up for themselves, somebody will and model what speaking up looks like so that in the future with somebody in college or in a fraternity or in high school at a party, they have already been shown what it feels and sounds and looks like to say, no, I don't do that. I'm not comfortable with that. And I like to apply some words around that. It's learning how to override your red flags, learning how to override your natural reaction to not wanting something. And that's really powerful. And allowing your children to be forced into a kiss with their grandparents or saying, oh, you have to because it's your grandparents. Even if you perceive that as a safe situation, you trust your parents, you trust your spouse's parents, whatever. Even if it's a safe situation, you are still teaching your child to override that icky feeling. And that's something that I think is really dangerous. It it always comes back to being a youth educator or a parent, role modeling, role modeling, healthy, appropriate behavior. And role modeling advocacy so that if it's happening around you, um, because I think consent is also a community issue I think that the way people respond to people who 
don't honor or respect consent with other people around them, it becomes a community issue. In living with groups of of teenagers, um, I've seen lots of situations where it becomes known that somebody is not good at consent, is disrespectful of consent, uh, pushes consent boundaries, uh, puts people into dangerous situations. And when nobody will say anything about it, when nobody will advocate for anybody else, it actually allows the community to sort of slip further into that. And it teaches everybody else to really override the icky feeling even more. Yeah, which really enforces the need for the work we're doing and for parents to step in. Absolutely. All right, so we've acknowledged that it's challenging to define consent. We've acknowledged that there's definitely a connection between consent and personal boundaries. How do we teach consent? What conversations should we be having? What language should we be using? Where I like to do it is I like to start by giving a list of what no means, because no is a hard word to say. I think it's important for teenagers in particular to not only just know how to say no, but how to hear the word no, because sometimes it doesn't come in the form of no. Silence is a no. Yes, when the person's drunk is a no. As I said earlier, yes in a text message is not yes in person. Ease up, dial it back over the line also means no. Not now, maybe later. No, thank you. You're not my type means no. IDK, I don't know, is a no. I think it's important to be able to first discuss how we misunderstand the cues or don't even actually hear the words coming at us. As important as saying the word no is equally as important as hearing the word no and being able to accept that. Yes. There was a a, a great saying is, uh, thank you for taking care of yourself. I've started giving them language to say after they hear no. If somebody says no to you, It's not a rejection and it's not even necessarily about you. This is about them checking in with their bodies. So when you hear the word no, train yourself immediately to say, thank you for taking care of yourself so that you can take in that this is something that somebody's doing positively for themselves and this will ultimately protect you and them. I love that. That's great. One of the things or two things that I heard in the past week overhearing my own children's lives is a friend was asked out by someone and she called my daughter to say, what do I say? And I happened to have been in the room and I said, well, what do you want to say? And she said, I want to say no. So I said, say no, I can't. And this went on for a little bit and she just can't say no. And I see that that's a pattern. They're in sixth grade, but they they cannot, somebody asks them out and they can't say no. So they just say yes. And then what happens further down the road? Another thing I heard was in one of my sessions, drunk words are sober thoughts. And when I checked this out with what my children, they had heard this before too. And in their teen minds, felt that it was real. They said that there are people who go around at parties and say, do you want to hook up with me or do you want to sleep with me? And then someone will say yes. And there was a particular party where one person got with a couple of people and they said, you know, when I I was having the conversation about consent and being drunk and they said, no, it's true. Drunk words are sober thoughts. 
which was so disturbing to me because they are not. So in other words, they were almost justifying yes. that if I'm drunk, liquid courage, Yeah, if you want liquid courage, if you want to sleep with me and I'm drunk, then you can say yes, because if I'm asking, I have liquid courage. And so I must have been thinking this. So these are just really real things that I've just kind of either popped into by putting clothes away in a room or in a session with someone and then tested out asking my own kids if they've heard it. And so it's really troubling and concerning to me that young people don't know how to say no and that it's also being interpreted as. Now, when you hear these sorts of things, can you, like as a mom and as somebody who's hearing these conversations and as somebody who has sessions with teenagers, are you also finding that if you were to say to them, what's consent or, you know, should I be teaching you about consent? They'll say, no, I know what it is. I know that I can say no. And I know like they have the language for it. They can say it, but then they'll also talk about this liquid courage business. Right. Which I believe is part of the adolescent brain, not being able to fully grasp that. I have a son who's oldest. I've always talked to him about consent. No means no, even if it's handholding. Now you're right. I am starting to talk to my girls about it. However, there have been other ways along the way that I have done it. Like, for example, even watching something in a movie where there's a love scene and everybody gets all uncomfortable. You know, I'll make a joke like, hmm, I didn't see any consent there and bring it up kind of that way. <laughs> When you asked the question before, um, how do we, how do you go about teaching consent? So I go about it from a very different way, living uh, with one cohort, you know, 25 to 30, 15 and 16 year olds for seven weeks, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. In those years, I was really their, their adult contact. I, I was their counselor. So when you talk about teaching it, it was in a very different way. Did I have sort of formal sessions with them? Yes, where I talked to them about the rules of where they are and things that, you know, they can't do and can do. But then it would also come up in the moment, in real time, where I would overhear them talking about things. So it's like what you had talked about with these parties and not being able to say no. And I can recall uh, one conversation where one uh, 16-year-old girl had said to me, and she's sitting around, there's about eight of them, and she said, so this guy wants to hook up with me tonight uh, in the ski shed or whatever. And I said, uh, well, what do you want to do? And she said, well, not really. And I said, so no. She's like, yeah, but then they're going to call me a baby. And I was so shocked. Right. This was maybe the year after the whole Me Too movement. Like if you asked them about it, they could tell you about it. They would talk about girl power. They would talk about saying no. But in the moment, there was no no. And when I said, so you say no. And I remember going back and forth, just like you did. Well, but, you know, if you don't want to do it or, but you can always say yes later if you decide you do, or you could like, this moment's not lost. And what I had said to them is every woman in their forties that I have ever spoken to has some sort of experience where they might've done something that they didn't actually want to do and they regret it. But I don't know anybody who has, you know, a bunch of stories where they didn't do something in the moment uh, in terms of sexual encounters and they regret it because they could always go back and do it anyways. <laughs> Nobody is missing a chance to give a guy a blowjob. That chance will probably open up again. And I, and they were laughing when I was explaining to them, but you know, I said, if you don't want to do it, explain to me where the, 
how you think it would be okay. Like that, that regret that you'll live with the shame where do you even understand that that's going to come in? And then I'm living with a bunch of girls every year who really, I can see the shame of, uh, and regret of having done stuff that they didn't consent to and they didn't want to. It's, it's, it's quite powerful. There's so much I want to say. There's so many plates uh, on the table right now. I don't know which one to pick up a fork and dig uh, in, Scott. Do it, baby. <laughs> buffet style. Buffet style. I really think it's important to talk a little bit. To, I just don't want to let this pass too too far, Michelle. When you overheard the conversation about you know drinking sober thoughts are drunk words are sober thoughts. Drunk words are sober thoughts. It's important to make. I want your listeners to remember this. Drinking while engaging in any kind of sexual behavior, even kissing, can increase the risk for sexual assault, increase the risk for transmitting or getting a sexually transmitted disease or infection, and Mm -hmm. can increase the risk for uh, getting an unplanned pregnancy. So while it is a sober thought, there are intervening variables known as danger that can come and change the whole scenario. So that's what I want to say about the incapacitation and, and, and drugs uh, and, and sex. And, and also when it comes to incapacitation and drinking, I think it's really important to understand that one person's definition of being drunk is not somebody else's definition. And for some people, even the smell of alcohol on another person's breath is enough as opposed to three drinks or two drinks based on how their body metabolizes the alcohol. So it's important to understand that consent while having any alcohol at all increases the risk for all of these things, including not being able to make or impairing your judgment. So when it comes to, is that, is that okay? You have anything to say about that? That's great. Yeah. So. This also brings in people who are sleeping because they're drunk That's great. or have passed out in, or sleeping and they're not drunk. Anytime a person is incapacitated due to being handicapped, due to being drunk, due to being asleep, they are not able to give their consent. When it comes to why people can't say no and the danger involved in that, it might have something to do with a trauma bond. So it's not true for everybody, but I happen to think that many people are walking around the planet, myself included, working through their trauma bonds. And one of the ways we work through them is in sexual activity because they come alive in dangerous scenarios. So simply put, trauma bond is is something that happened early in life. It's known as an ACES, Adverse Childhood Experience whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, or even your dog dying, or your parents splitting up, or your grandfather uh, dying, whatever it is, they can cause a trauma in early life that creates numbness Mm -hmm. around intimacy. This is an important sentence. People who are traumatized young, early, sometimes will find themselves in a dangerous scenario and respond to it in a positive way. Why? Simply put, trauma bonding means you meet somebody at a party who seems not like a jerk. 
not like a good person, but not like a jerk. And the absence of the victimization, the absence of the rage, the absence of the anger makes the person in the trauma bond think they're in love. To a person, a teenager, a young adult engaging in an activated trauma bond in a sexual encounter, they will define love as the relief that comes from the absence of oppression. So the reason they can't say no is because the person in front of them is being nice. Because in my childhood, this ended with a spanking or being punished in some way or being rejected. So the activation of a trauma bond is one of the reasons why people today can't say no to sex. And it doesn't even have to be as complicated as, I don't think that's a complex thing when you're actually going through feeling it. It happens very quick and it, it happens all the time. The seeking and need for approval, particularly from a teenage mind, even just approval in any way, again, is higher on priority ladder often than safety. Receiving attention and approval will also be higher on a priority ladder. And also to add to what Scott's saying is just the term, your body can betray you in that situation. If you can be in a situation and teenagers don't have the critical thinking to understand that your body is not necessarily um, going to support what you thought consent was. So I'm hearing, though, that in addition to teaching and talking about consent, it's equally important to talk about when teenagers can't give or get sexual consent. That brings me to the thing that I really want to talk about, and I know Tracy wants to talk about, which is how do you say no when you've said yes? Mm -hmm. When the hell yeah, I really want to kiss you, turns into a hell no, I don't want your mouth right. on that part of my body. Yeah. But I, I was okay with the kissing, but I'm not okay with this. Something has changed. How do you turn a really enthusiastic, affirmative, consensual yes into a get off my body as mm -hmm. quickly as you can? Because we've already started something, right? Tracy, you want to take it from there? Well, I was going to say, I with a lot of girls who I've spoken to over the years and some boys, it is very difficult. It is, it's easier to stay in the uncomfortable situation intellectually for them than to uh, make things uncomfortable. They perceive making things uncomfortable as something that they're not supposed to do. So, so there's that. Yeah. No, especially because a lot of teens think that the pressure that to have sex is usually physically violent or forceful. And most of the time it's not, it's like, you led me on all night. We were making out what happened. And, and that's where it becomes extremely challenging for them. That becomes challenging on top of the fact that our perceived assaulter is not what it really is. This person who you grew up with, this person whose parents are best friends with your parents, this person who you've told everything to, this person who is so nice right. to all of your friends, because it's not necessarily that they are a violent person or anything. And it could be that they're not even meaning or, or uh, maliciously doing this. They're just not hearing your, your signs, or maybe you're afraid to say no. So how do they hear those signs? Here's my answer. There's a, a great expression I learned many years ago in my one of my support groups that's called correct for drift. It's a sailing term, 
that when a mm -hmm. sailboat goes across the water in the wrong direction, you correct for drift. In a sexual encounter, correct for drift means how learning how to say no. And the way that I get a teenager or even an adult and myself included here in this scenario to correct for drift when I've drifted off to a place I don't want to be with somebody, it's gone place where I need to know how to say no, is, is something that I learned from my sister. My sister's divorce attorney said to her, if you speak to your ex-husband and you have a conversation that's more than five words, it's going to cost you a lot of money in legal fees. So I've discussed this with teenagers, and I think the best way to turn a yes, a hell yes, into a hell no is in five-word sentences or less. This is how you teach a teenager to correct for drift. It just doesn't feel right. I believe I said no. But the biggest one I learned was many years ago when I went to my HIV support group and raised my hand and said that I got infected with HIV because I did not know how to say no. I thought it would be a good idea to let him do what he wanted and teach me. He said he'd love me. I was in a trauma bond. And the facilitator looked at me and she said, five words I will never forget and I want every one of your listeners to remember. She said, nobody ever taught you the expression. Here it is. Something just doesn't feel right. Five words. Something just doesn't feel right is another way, an easy way to correct for drift, a safe way to say no. Why? Because there's no you and I. It's not I don't feel safe because a person in a trauma bond can't say I. And there's no you because a person who feels danger or isn't enjoying the encounter doesn't want to hurt the other person by using the word you. Mm -hmm. But there's so because there's no you or I, it's the generic something doesn't feel right is a way to correct for drift and then leave. It's a tool. It's not even psychological. It's an actual tool that people can put in their pockets to use when they need it. And I have used it enough times to know that it works. So I have a question for you, Scott. So how old were you when you learned that term? I was 25. And when you talk about that with teenagers, has your experience been that they're able to implement that? Yeah, well, I don't know in the moment because they say to me with faces full of excitement, I'm going to be able to use that. Now, I don't hear from them after, generally, but the fact that they are looking forward, they're armed, yes. have an arsenal of words and information, and, and, and including information, um, some um, a sense of, 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 of agency about themselves with when it comes to having sex, tells me that they're, they're more ready to be in a situation that they can take care of themselves. I agree. And I think it's just, you know, and I, I really don't mean to sound um, negative. <laughs> don't mean to go there. But the thing that I have found the most challenging in, in my experience with teenagers, they say the words, they know the words, they get excited. And it really takes a lot of times before they actually feel safe enough or they or they respect themselves enough or whatever it is, or before their priority ladder shifts 
where being popular or being liked is not as high as being safe or being self-respect respectful. And, and I come from this as we have more work to do as they're entering teenage years to make that kind of sentence more usual, something that they're already used to saying in lots of different ways. And for them to recognize the moments when they can say that or when they should say that, that I feel like we're dropping the ball on. I had a a conversation with my daughter when she was, I don't know, seven. She she asked me a question about something. It was, there was something about a condom. She was reading a New York Times article. It led to quite the conversation about a lot of things. And what she said was, oh my gosh, oh oh my gosh, I would never say that. I would, you know, I can't, I, I, we can't, don't even talk about that with me. And I said, great. I said, remember that. Because if you can't talk about it, if you can't say the words, you shouldn't be doing the thing. One of the things I think that happens with teenagers is that they're not even communicating at all with each other. And this opens up another topic, which is online texting, uh, the whole technology part of it, is that they've removed themselves even more they're not having these conversations before. They're texting about whether or not they're going to hook up with some people who they only know that visually they have uh, like a feeling of attraction for. And so they've never had a conversation. It's very difficult to say any words to somebody when you've never even said no to that person for just like, hey, do you like this color? No. If you've never said no in a casual situation to somebody, you can't say no when everything's on the line. And that's what's hard. There's That's a tremendous point, Tracy. And maybe that is part of one of the steps that come before teaching or talking about consent is communication. Yes. Um, I find the same thing that teens are willing to do these really intimate acts, but not have an intimate conversation. They won't even say the words. They won't even say the words. When I've had conversations... Uh, with some of these kids, uh, well, what happened when you asked him or when you told him that you didn't want to do this or what? Oh my gosh, I didn't say that. And I said, well, have you ever said to this person, I like this or that? Because she asked me for advice because she was feeling uncomfortable and pain during sex with somebody and she's young. And I said, well, why don't you just say, I would prefer it like this. And she just about died. She said, I can't say that. I said, why can't you say that? And she said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about my, my vulva. And I said, wait a second, you can't say the word vulva to somebody who you will let put their mouth on it. And she was like, oh my gosh, Tracy. Oh, don't talk like that. And I thought, how are you doing the actions if you can't say the words? There's a part of the brain that literally shuts down. Yes. And it and it wakes up after the act. And you and I and Michelle have all experienced this and every one of your listeners when in it after the sexual act, you're putting your clothes back. I'll speak for myself only. Putting my clothes back on, and I realize, oh my God, I did that with him. No, you just spoke for me. It's fine. Okay. So there's a part of the brain that shuts down and yes. allows you to do that. And you are having a conversation in a, in a different scenario with somebody yeah. whose part of their brain is now open. And I'm simply trying to give teenagers when their brains are shut down, a simple practical tool that yes. they at least have in their palm of their hand. 
five simple words so that they can at least remember there's something I'm underneath the weight of his body and I don't know what to do. Wait, I heard some expression, five words or less. Five words is at least an, a, it's some way to give them a sense of empowerment. Five simple words. Totally agree with you, Scott. I love that idea. I love the idea. So you have a toolbox that's at your fingertips that doesn't implicate you or the person. It's safe. They understand it while their brain is open is amazing. And I also think that having um, something that sits in the back of their mind, because I've said the words, when he's putting his mouth on you in this way, and when you are thinking, I can't say that, to have something that might uh, trigger an, uh, an open moment in the moment so that they'll remember to use what we put in the toolbox is also important. They will have a little bit of a connective moment where it's like, oh, I'm doing that thing now and, I'm, and I, I wouldn't talk about this. And how do you have that conversation? Something we didn't say earlier. One of the ways you get somebody to learn to use their words is you get the parents involved when they're 9, 10, 11, mm. or 12. And you do something known as something called, these are my conditions for sexual intimacy. I will know that I will be able to say yes when three or more of these conditions are met, or if none of, the, or if one of these conditions is not met. And you with your daughter, you with your son, sit down together and say what those conditions are mm -hmm. so that when the time comes to be having sex, they can hear your voice in their heads and they'll also feel your presence having been with you in a safe way mm -hmm. saying, this is together as a team, what we decided is good for you. Now you're on your own. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And, and so here today, we've learned that consent is essential to healthy, respectful, safe, and enjoyable experiences for teens. That communication is key to giving and getting consent. That there are some situations where teens can't give or receive consent. And that's a really important conversation to have as well. And the importance of having a healthy adult in their life, whether it's a parent or a youth educator, that can have these conversations. I think the key messages for teens are that they do have the right to feel safe, comfortable, and pleasured, that it's okay for a child to say no. It's okay for teens to feel uncertain and that everybody has a right to change their mind. Um, and that these are the conversations we need to be having. And I do need to add that it's so important to never, ever, ever blame a teen for being or getting themselves in a situation where they couldn't change their minds. So before we officially wrap it up, I just want to ask you guys if you wanted to add anything. I like what you said about never blaming. And I, I want to uh, add that them getting themselves into a bad situation is actually not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. Yes. The problem was not having learned communication or not having awareness or not. The, that thing that happened that maybe we didn't want for them to experience is actually a symptom of a larger thing. And, and that's what we need to support them with and take care of them and, and advocate for them to them and to other people. And I wanted to add, I want every one of you listeners to know about three simple letters known as PEP. P-E-P -E stands for post 
exposure, prophylaxis. Prophylaxis is a fancy word for preventative. PEP, PEP is a 28-day regimen for people who have been exposed to HIV. It's a morning after type of pill for HIV, but it only works in the first 72 hours. So if someone has been exposed or perceived they've been exposed to HIV because they were drunk or didn't give consent, but it was taken from them. They have up to three days, 72 hours to get on a 28-day regimen of PEP, which is a similar type of med that a person with HIV takes for the rest of their lives, which arrests in most cases, the development of HIV taking its root in the immune system and it stops the person from getting infected if they were to get infected. Everybody needs to know that PEP exists. If you don't know where to find it, simply go to www greaterthan.org, greaterthan.org, and it will tell you where in your zip code you can get on the nearest regimen of 28-day pills to stop the infection of HIV. PEP. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much, Scott. That's so important. So if your teenager or a teenager in your life has experienced any sexual assault, they'll need your support, including your support for decisions about reporting that support. And I know that we didn't even get into the whole sexting and nude photos that goes on, um, you know, that also has a lot to do with um, communication, being able to say no, um, being manipulated, lots of different teen issues. Maybe we'll do a part two. But I thank you both Tracy and Scott for your your knowledge, your time, and most of all, your passion and doing youth work and helping to ensure that we have a brighter future with awesome teens. So thank you both. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you so much, Scott. That was, that was wonderful. Great to be with you both. Let's do it again. <laughs>